Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 21. Let's read this again, and then we'll get into the lesson. Matthew 24, beginning at verse 15. It says, So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. May Yahweh bless these words to our hearts today. Yesterday, we began going through these verses in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, and we looked at their context and here in this chapter, and we also looked at the context in the culture of the time. And I think that it's really amazing what we glean from the Scriptures when we stop trying to make the Scriptures say something that we want them to say and we let them speak for themselves. Now, that's easier said than done, but that should be all of our goal. All of us, whether we realize it or not, we come to the Scriptures with certain presuppositions and certain things, biases in our minds. And sometimes we don't even realize it when we read. But our goal should be to try the best we know how to lay all that to the side and ask Yahweh, what does this mean? And so today I'd like to continue to do this, and I want to build on a few points from the last lesson from yesterday. And I think that we'll answer a few questions and maybe objections along the way. The first thing I want to point out is that many people think that the abomination of desolation is some kind of pagan statue that is set up inside of a future temple that is yet to be built in Jerusalem, Israel. Now the text in Matthew 15 doesn't specifically say that, but they may get it from the statement about the holy place in Matthew 24:15, where it says standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation. Yeshua says this, and people read holy place, and they think of the holy place and the holy of holies, or the most holy place in the tabernacle or in the temple. And I want to mention something here that I've mentioned briefly in previous lessons. There is a temple in view in the context of Matthew chapter 24, but it's the temple that Yeshua was in when he rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees, and it's the temple that he walked out of when he got through rebuking the scribes and Pharisees. That's the temple that's in view. He said, do you see these stones, he told his disciples, talking about the stones that made up the temple that existed then. There's nothing in Matthew chapter 24, absolutely nothing about a future temple or a future rebuilt temple or anything like that. Yeshua is dealing strictly with the temple that stood in his day in that particular generation. But to further answer this question about what the abomination that causes desolation is or what it consists of, and if it has anything to do with the temple, let's put Matthew 24, 15 through 16, side by side with Luke 21, 20 through 21 because they're parallel texts, two different authors recording the same account. 
I'm going to be color coding what I believe to be the parallels in the two accounts. Some of them are obvious, but some of them I feel have been overlooked because Luke records them using different wording than Matthew. Or we could even say that Matthew records them using different wording than Luke. Let's look first at the words, when you see, which I've colored in red, that are used in both passages. This teaches us that whatever Yeshua was speaking about was able to be seen by the people that he was speaking to. He told his disciples, according to Matthew's account, when you see the abomination that causes desolation. According to Luke's account, he said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So it was something that they would be able to see. Now, not only does neither text explicitly mention a statue being set up in the temple, but it wouldn't make much sense for that to be the abomination that causes desolation because if it only took place inside of the temple, very few people would be able to see it. So it's something that can be seen on the housetop, out in the field, and we're going to see even outside of the city of Jerusalem. That's my next point. Notice also at the end of Luke 21, 21, where Yeshua says, those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it. So Yeshua says that people inside the city, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, must leave. Why? And he's talking to his followers. Remember, why must they leave? Because of seeing the abomination that will cause desolation. But Yeshua also says that people in the country, which means outside of the city of Jerusalem, they must not enter into the city. Why? Why is he giving his disciples instructions for people that are outside of the city? Well, it's because when the abomination that causes desolation happens, it's likely that some of his followers might be outside of the city. But they could still see the abomination that causes desolation. Whether they're out in the country or in the city, they can still see this occurrence. Or as Luke says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So people in the country of Judea would still be able to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and that would be the abomination that causes desolation. People in the city would be able to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and that would be the abomination as well. That's the sign that they the Christians, the followers of, of the Messiah, should flee to the mountains in order to escape the coming tribulation. This is why I've color-coded in green both the abomination that causes in Matthew's gospel and surrounded by armies in Luke's gospel. Matthew and Luke are saying the same thing in two different ways. The armies surrounding the city would be the abomination that causes and notice that I've color-coded in blue both uses of the word desolation. And it's not only the same word in English here, but it's the same word in Greek, eremosis. And it means, desolation means to lay waste or to bring something to naught. So the surrounding armies would lay waste or bring to naught the city of Jerusalem. Or we could say the abominable armies would cause desolation to the city. So hopefully we're seeing the parallels here. This brings me to my next point, the parallel, the proper understanding of the holy place in Matthew 24, 15. 
if we notice all of these parallels by comparing Matthew and Luke, we should be able to notice the remaining parallel that we haven't covered. Matthew says the abomination that causes desolation is standing in the holy place. We've already seen that Luke records this as the armies that are surrounding. Surrounding what? Yes, surrounding Jerusalem. Jerusalem, color-coded in purple, is Luke's parallel to the holy place in the book of Matthew. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies is the same thing as when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing in the holy place. The holy place is not a reference to just the temple by itself, but to the entire location of the city of Jerusalem. The Roman armies would stand in and around Jerusalem, which here is called by Yeshua the holy place. It should not be difficult for us to recognize that Jerusalem can be called the holy place. It was Yahweh's chosen city for a very long time. It was the capital city for the southern house of Judah, And it was the place where everyone went three times a year to keep the appointed feasts. In Luke chapter 2 verse 41, it says that every year Yeshua's parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 5, and also Matthew chapter 27 verse 53, the Bible calls Jerusalem the holy city. Now that doesn't mean that every time you see the words holy place in your Bible, that it has to mean Jerusalem. But when you compare Matthew with Luke here, parallel accounts, it shows us that in this context, the holy place that Yeshua is talking about, where the abomination stands, is the place of Jerusalem. In the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, a couple hundred years before Yeshua's Olivet Discourse, we see that Jerusalem is called the Holy Land in 2 Maccabees 1.7. The holy place in 2 Maccabees 2.18 and the holy city in 2 Maccabees 3 verse 1. So the point is clear when you compare Matthew and Luke, the abomination that causes desolation stands in the holy place. Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies, thus desolation would be near. This is something that Yeshua's disciples could see. Matthew and Luke are speaking of the same thing, but in two different ways. The next point is to attempt to understand why the armies surrounding Jerusalem are called an abomination that causes desolation. Why are they called an abomination? Well, the desolation part is not difficult to understand because the armies did come into Jerusalem and caused desolation to the city or to the holy place. Remember that the word desolation means to lay waste or to bring to naught. The Roman armies that surrounded the city of Jerusalem in the year 67 to 70 A.D. certainly did bring Jerusalem to naught. They laid waste to the city. It makes me cringe when I read Josephus' account of the things that happened during those years. But Yahweh brought that judgment upon his people that rebelled against him by not receiving the Messiah that he had sent to them. The parable of the vineyard took place for 33 and a half years in Yeshua's earthly ministry. The son of the landowner was rejected and he was murdered. It is as Yeshua said to the women watching him walk off to be crucified 
as Simon carried his cross. Yeshua said in Luke 23, 28-31, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? See, Yeshua knew that extreme judgment was coming upon the daughters of Jerusalem and their children. Extreme judgment was coming upon first century Judah and their city Jerusalem because as a whole they had rejected their Messiah. He came unto his own, and remember that specifically talking about the nation of Judah, and his own people did not receive him. John 1 verse 11. The judgment that came upon the city of Jerusalem in Judah between 67 to 70 A.D. was divine judgment. It was Yahweh-ordained judgment. And it was all because the Son had came to visit for 33 and a half years. But the people, for the most part, did not receive the time of their visitation. So, the armies, the Roman armies, certainly did cause desolation on the holy place of Jerusalem, but why are they called an abomination? An abomination that causes desolation. Let me begin by quoting some of the older commentators on this particular passage. First, I want to quote Albert Barnes, a Presbyterian theologian from the 1800s. Listen to what he says about Matthew 24, verse 15. The abomination of desolation, quote, This is a Hebrew expression meaning an abominable or hateful destroyer. The abomination of desolation means the Roman army and is so explained by Luke 21, verse 20. The Roman army is farther called the abomination on account of the images of the emperor and the eagles carried in front of the legions and regarded by the Romans with divine honors. Stand in the holy place. Mark says, standing where it ought not, meaning the same thing. All Jerusalem was esteemed holy, Matthew 4, verse 5. The meaning of this is, when you see the Roman army standing in the holy city or encamped around the temple, or the Roman ensigns or standards in the temple, Josephus farther relates that when the city was taken, the Romans brought their idols into the temple and placed them over the eastern gate and sacrificed to them there. End of that quote. Most of the older Bible commentators mention something similar to Albert Barnes here. The Roman armies carried with them ensigns or standards into battle. And these symbols and flags represented their nation on which were an image of an eagle and an image of the Caesar. And the emblems were honored by the Romans in such a way that they would worship them. They didn't just carry them with them as emblems, but they would actually bow down and pay homage to the images. That's second commandment violation. That's idolatry. Now, I pulled a short video clip which was actually made by the Roman Catholic Church, which is interesting. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but it was a good video. I pulled a piece of it out off of the Internet. And it explains the importance of the ensign or the standard in the ancient Roman army. Hopefully this will play. I want you to listen carefully. 
several cultures, like the Egyptians, Babylonians, and Greeks, had processions where ritual items were carried before priests, governors, and other persons of import. But arguably, the most direct influence on the development of the Christian processional cross can be found in the practices of ancient Rome, particularly in its use of a distinctive military object, the standard. For several hundred years, the Roman Empire encompassed much of the known world. Her conquests were a product of the army's efficiency, loyalty, and ferocity. One of the most striking visual aspects of the imperial army were tall poles affixed with various insignia and symbols called standards. Each century, cohort, and legion had its own symbols that were often associated with the birthday of the unit or its founder, while other emblems commemorated military exploits or other victories. In this way, standards helped preserve the cohesiveness and pride of the soldiers as it embodies the unit's milestones and achievements. Standards served important wartime functions. Army units required a device to watch and follow in battle, and soldiers needed to recognize their own units at a glance in order not to be scattered. The tall standards were seen above the fighting, and waving them in a predetermined manner relayed troop movements and provided other instructions. As the empire grew, standards also helped unite the many soldiers who were recruited from foreign lands. The standards reminded them that before they were Britons, Gauls, or Balkans, they were above all a soldier for Rome. Off the field of battle, standards took part in several civic and religious celebrations where they were anointed with oils and carried in processions. Roman standards were held in awe, so much so that Tertullian, writing in the second century, declared that soldiers worship their standards above all gods. Now, there actually was a movie. I didn't realize this until I was studying for this sermon. But there was a movie that was made in 2011 called The Eagle. I've never seen it. It looks like it would probably be a pretty good film. But the film tells the story of a young Roman officer that was searching to recover the lost Roman eagle standard of his father's legion in the northern part of Great Britain. And this is a movie that is based on a time period, I think, in the 1st and 2nd century A.D. Once again, that movie is called The Eagle, talking about the standard. In his commentary on Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Albert Barnes mentions that Josephus records that the Roman armies eventually did bring their standards inside the temple in Jerusalem. They first surrounded Jerusalem, standing where they ought not, in the holy city. They eventually, though, as the tribulation progressed over a three-and-a-half-year period, they eventually brought in these standards into the temple there in Jerusalem. Josephus, Wars of the Judahites, Book 6, Chapter 6, Section 1, reads as follows. Quote, And now the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious into the city, and upon the burning of the holy house itself, 
and of all the buildings round about it, brought their ensigns to the temple and set them over against its eastern gate, and there they did offer sacrifices to them. And there did they make Titus imperator with the greatest acclamations of joy. End of that quote from Josephus. I want you to notice that the Romans offered sacrifices to these images, probably of unclean animals, to their images, the image of Caesar and the image of the eagle. Adam Clark, Methodist theologian, 17 to 1800s A.D., comments on Matthew 24:15 by saying, quote, The Roman army is called an abomination for its ensigns and images which were so to the Jews or the Judahites. Josephus says, and he mentions the text we just read, the Romans brought their ensigns into the temple and placed them over against the eastern gate and sacrificed to them there. The Roman army is therefore fitly called the abomination, and the abomination which maketh desolate, as it was to desolate and lay waste Jerusalem. And this army besieging Jerusalem is called by St. Mark, Mark 13, 14, standing where it ought not, that is, as in the text here, the holy place, as not only the city, but a considerable compass of ground about it was deemed holy, and consequently no profane persons should stand on it. End of that quote. So, I believe that the reason the Roman armies in the holy place of Jerusalem are called an abomination that causes desolation is because of the idol worship of their ensigns or their standards. They worship the eagle and the Caesar that was upon their standards. This makes even more sense when we look up the Greek word behind abomination in Matthew 24, 15. The word is delugma, and it's defined by Strong's Concordance as a detestation, especially idolatry. Vine's Dictionary defines it in part as denotes an object of disgust. Thayer's defines it as a foul or detestable thing, and then adds later that in the Old Testament often used of idols, and things pertaining to idolatry, to be held in abomination by the Israelites. And then Mr. Thayer lists several Old Testament verses where the word is used in this way. And I'd like to just look at one verse that Henry Joseph Thayer mentions first in his Greek lexicon defining this Greek word for abomination. And that is the, the verse in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 5 through 6. I'm going to read out of the King James Version. It says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of Yahweh and went not fully after Yahweh, as did David his father. See that word abomination there in 1 Kings 11 verse 5. Well, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word is delugma, the same word used in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Abomination in 1 Kings and abomination in Matthew 24. And as we see in 1 Kings 11, the abomination that it's speaking of is the god of the Ammonites, Milcom, which was likely worshipped or identified via an idol. This is why the Roman armies are the abomination that causes desolation. They are idolatrous armies, worshiping Caesar in his image and worshiping the image of the unclean eagle. John Gill writes on Matthew 24, 15, quote, The Roman armies were desolating ones to the Judahites and to whom they were an abomination, not only because they consisted of heathen men and uncircumcised persons, 
but chiefly because of the images of their gods which were upon their ensigns. For images and idols were always an abomination to them. End of that quote. When we look at all of this stuff and we compare Matthew with Luke like we've done in this lesson, it's really amazing to me to see how all of this dovetails together when we let something happen that's very simple. We let the Bible interpret the Bible instead of reading things into the Bible. In this case, we've seen how Matthew and Luke parallel and they're harmonious with each other. And it's also neat to see how that men who have studied the Bible before our time have came to the same conclusions. Never think that you can be just a lone ranger in your Bible study. Consider and take to heart what other learned men, students of Scripture, now and in the past, they've put time in to study the Bible too. Consider what they have to say. doesn't mean you'll always agree, but consider in the multitude of counsel their safety. As I close this lesson, I want to briefly comment on the one part that I have not dealt with yet. That's Matthew 24, verse 15, where Yeshua says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. This lets us know that what Yeshua is telling his disciples will happen will be the fulfillment of a prophecy that was spoken by Daniel. That takes us back to the prophecy about the 70 weeks in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9 which is a chapter that I have preached through before, but parts of which, parts of Daniel 9, I believe I interpreted wrongly or incorrectly. And that's because I placed, in my understanding, when I taught through Daniel 9, I placed most of Daniel 9 yet into the future. And I now believe that it was indeed future to Daniel at the time that he prophesied. And I believe that it was future to Yeshua. But I now am seeing that it is in the past to us now, who live now. And so in the next message, I'm going to break off from Matthew 24, and I'm going to go back to Daniel chapter 9, and see if we can understand how Daniel's prophecy was indeed fulfilled in total at the time period of the first coming of the Messiah, just like Yeshua taught in Matthew 24. And this is the thing that got me in studying Matthew 24. If the Messiah taught that Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled in that generation, then what I need to do as a Bible teacher is follow his lead. I can't think that I can come up with a different interpretation than Yeshua the Messiah. And so he clearly is teaching that Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled there in that generation. And so we go back to Daniel 9. We'll start that. Yahweh's will next week. To do it justice, we must start with Daniel 9 verse 1 to do it justice. So it won't just be an expository sermon on Matthew 24 when we go through Daniel 9 because Daniel 9 talks about other things that are practical and there will be some preaching involved in Daniel chapter 9 specifically about prayer and about humility. So Yahweh's will, we'll pick that up next week. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another time of studying your word. I pray that it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we would continuously study it every day, uh, never thinking that we've arrived, but constantly growing in our knowledge of the scriptures. Father, I pray that these prophetic texts, which sometimes seem so overwhelming, I know they do to me, 
I pray that somehow they're becoming simplified and easier to understand in the minds of the congregation. That's my goal, to teach in order to help people to understand your word better and then to apply the, the portions applicable to their life. So, Father, please answer my prayer. Give me the desire of my heart. Next week as we begin in the prophet Daniel, we go back to Daniel because Yeshua took us back to Daniel. I pray that you'd lead us and guide us through that and your will be accomplished for the good. For it's through your son, Yeshua, I pray. Amen.